This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Department of Homeland Security will be the lead federal agency for preparedness and response efforts related to the Russia-Ukraine crisis. The White House designated DHS to coordinate U.S. federal response efforts if the need arises. DHS has established a unified coordination group to ensure collaboration across the entire federal government to face possible threats to the homeland. CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, along with the FBI, have issued a joint cybersecurity advisory to give an overview of the types of malware that are being used to target organizations in Ukraine. The advisory will also provide guidance on how to detect malware and protect the networks of those organizations. CISA says that some immediate actions that would strengthen cyber posture include enabling multi-factor authentication and conducting regular antivirus scans. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board has announced new changes for the thrift savings plan. Federal News Networks reports that some of those changes include more digital tools, fewer fund reviews, and a new retirement system. The board has had some staffing issues as a result of the pandemic and supply chain challenges, but says it hopes to be back on track in March with a new employee training pipeline. As Russia continues its assault on Ukraine, the world is left with the question, what happens if Russia wins? Michael Kimmage is a professor of history at the Catholic University of America and visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I want to first go back a bit to 2015, to Russia's involvement in the Syrian conflict. What can we learn from that? I think we can learn two things that are relevant to the current conflict in Ukraine. The first is on the U.S. or the Western side, this venture was underestimated or or Russia's capacities were underestimated. President Obama said that it would be a quagmire for Russia. uh, And you can see how one would want that to be the case from uh, from a U.S. point of view. uh, But it did not end up being the case. So there's uh, a concern I have at the moment that uh, we may be underestimating or perhaps a week ago that we were underestimating Russia's uh, willingness to use military force. And it's possibility of of doing so in a way that's successful uh, in Russian terms. Secondly, the Syrian campaign for Russia uh, was the exertion of military force, the projection of military force, uh, not to resolve the conflict, not to create a viable state in Syria. Syria remains a war zone uh, in a very chaotic place, but Russia used its military power to increase its diplomatic leverage uh, in the region. I have no idea if that's going to be the case with Ukraine. I'm somehow doubtful of that, but I think it could be the Russian reasoning. Uh, in Ukraine that they that, that they drew a lesson from Syria uh, about the benefits of using military force. Well, you wrote an article and you titled it, What if Russia wins? So how is winning defined for Russia? That's an excellent question. I think that there are two levels of success that Russia is interested in at the moment. The first is I would describe as as negative and it's blocking certain outcomes. So to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO, to grind down the relationship between Ukraine and the United States or between Ukraine uh, and Europe. Uh, and you know that's, I think, the lower level ambition that Putin has. Um, and you know to that extent, you know, Russia could, in quotation marks, succeed uh, by turning Ukraine into Syria, by turning it into a war zone uh, that would have no chances of, of, of joining the NATO alliance. Uh, 
so that's the, the lower level of, of aspiration that I think Putin has at the moment. The higher level of aspiration is to build a structure politically in Ukraine that's to his liking. Maybe this involves the partition of the country or the installation uh, of, a, of a puppet regime. Uh, in Kiev, and this would be a government that would be deferential or uh, subservient to Moscow. I think this is very wishful thinking on Putin's part. Uh, and when you see in some ways how badly the military operation has gone for Russia, uh, they're extremely far from uh, that kind of scenario. But it doesn't mean that they'll give up on, on the first scenario of, uh, of sowing chaos uh, and destroying the Ukrainian state, and sort of leaving it at that. Well, let's say they, they do accomplish that and they succeed. What does that mean for the other Eastern European countries? I mean, will Russia invade them next? I, I doubt it. Uh, you know, I think uh, when you see the commitment of resources Russia has made in Ukraine, 200,000 troops uh, and lots of military hardware, uh, and you know they're nowhere near militarily where they had hoped to be at this point. Uh, and if they really intend to occupy territory, it's going to bog Russia down uh, for uh, for years to come. So there's the practical logistical side of things, which uh, would make it very difficult for Russia to move on from Ukraine. This is uh, a massive undertaking for them and one that's by no means uh, guaranteed to succeed in, in Putin's terms, of course. Uh, on the other hand, what we do have to reckon with is the terrible risks, the enormous risks Putin has undertaken in this venture. And I think that for those of us who have been longtime Putin watchers, uh, we're all surprised by that. Uh, and so we can't be surprised anymore. We do have to think through the possible risks to the Baltic republics, uh, to the NATO alliance that Putin might uh, entertain. I think outright invasion is very unlikely, but he might seek to provoke or to challenge uh, the NATO alliance in ways that could be destabilizing. And at the moment, we have to get ourselves ready for that. You know, one scenario that you mentioned would be that the United States will be in, quote, a state of permanent economic war with Russia. What do you mean? I think we're already there. Uh, you know, the sanctions are the most ambitious uh, uh, imaginable sanctions policy. They are going to uh, affect the Russian government's ability to function. They're going to have a really strong effect on the Russian economy. And unlike, I think, the 2014 sanctions, the first round uh, in this conflict, they're going to have an effect on daily life uh, in Russia. Uh, that, of course, is not going to be perceived uh, <laughs> with indifference uh, or passivity by Putin. He's going to lash out in some way. Uh, perhaps with a cyber attack or you know, perhaps by withholding gas from, uh, from Europe. And then there will be a kind of obligation on the Western side uh, to respond or to, to, to escalate. So we are in a very intense phase of conflict being fought uh, through economic means. Uh, and I think it's difficult. I very much hope that we can keep the economic and the military tracks separate, but it's often difficult to, to do that in practice. And so to say that we're in a state of economic warfare, it sounds shocking to me. Uh, but I think it's just a fact at this point. So what would the new world order look like in the event of a Russian victory? And then what would the U.S. what would the U.S.'s strategy be? I'll say from the from the from the outset that I think uh, Russian victory over the long term in Ukraine to me is very improbable. I think that this war uh, is going to fail for Russia, but I suspect it may fail in four or five years, uh, which is, of course, catastrophic for uh, for Ukraine and catastrophic for the rest of us. So in the very long term, I think uh, this war may prove to be less transformational than it feels uh, at the moment. Michael, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for being on the show. Coming next, as Russian military action against Ukraine continues to unfold, there are concerns about escalation. Straight ahead on Government Matters, will Russia launch cyber attacks against the U.S.? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
As Russian military action against Ukraine unfolds and American sanctions are imposed, there are concerns about Russian cyber attacks against the U.S. James Lewis is a senior vice president at CSIS. Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you. So you've concluded in your writing that a Russian cyber attack against U.S. critical infrastructure is highly unlikely. Why? Because Vladimir Putin, whether we like him or not, is very shrewd. And he's calculating what would be the benefit I would get from enraging the United States. That doesn't mean he might do things. There, there's probably some temptation to do something like colonial pipeline, but no big turning off the power grid, no big attacks. It just doesn't advance their interests. Right now, he wants to concentrate on conquering the Ukraine, and poking a stick into the United States doesn't help him do that. Well, but what about something that's a little bit less than critical infrastructure, something that would cripple parts of the, of the U.S. economy just to retaliate for sanctions? Putin has a choice, and it appears that for big cyber actions, he is the person making the decision. And so one choice is, does he let Russian government agencies do some kind of cyber attack against the U.S.? That's a little higher risk. Lower risk would be to encourage Russian cyber criminals, who are better than most governments, to increase the pace of ransomware to go after financial targets. Um, that might be the most attractive option for him, but it's not a massive cyber attack. It's fraud, robbery, crime. Um, I think that's going to be the temptation for him. And he may not do anything because he's a little preoccupied at the moment. You know, you say that Putin has gained and kept the initiative and that the U.S. reacts to Russia and not the other way around. Do you think Russia has learned how to manipulate the West? Oh, absolutely. Russia has learned how to manipulate the West. And Putin is a master of it. He is a former uh, KGB officer. This is his stock and trade. And he is pretty good at calculating how much he can get away with, um, how we're likely to react. He doesn't have a high respect for NATO or the U.S. or our allies. He thinks we're in decline. And so he looks for ways to push us around. And to the, the whole negotiation leading up to Ukraine was just classic Russian negotiating tactics with threats and bombast and maybe we'll do this. So he is an expert manipulator and he does it to us. So do you think that the fact that uh, the U.S. and Russia are nuclear powers reduce the likelihood of cyber attacks since the risk of escalation would be too great? That's the big factor that overhangs all cyber confrontations between nuclear powers is none of them want to cross that line. None of them want to lead to anything that might create the possibility of nuclear war. Um, that's the thing that's reshaped warfare in the 21st century, is no one wants to risk nuclear war. So yes, it's a very clear threshold. Um, the Russians are good at staying just below the line when it comes to doing things to us. They don't want nuclear war, war any more than we do. And so it's, it's probably one of the biggest factors shaping their military calculations. You know, Jim, you authored a report recently on creating accountability for global cyber norms. What are you suggesting in terms of consequences for a country that doesn't adhere to those norms? Um, if you look at Russian behavior, they actually started hacking U.S. computers in the 1980s. It's amazing, right? And so they've been getting away with this for about 40 years without significant penalty. And in the last year, the Biden administration has figured this out. They're moving in the right direction. 
but the Russians don't really get that much damage out of sanctions. I mean, Putin doesn't care if his citizens suffer. I mean, you know, uh, it's it's not a way to. The Russians are inured to sanctions, so we need to think of other things we can do to increase the penalty, increase the risk of engaging in cyber action. Because right now there's no cost. Why should they stop? Well, you know, cyber attacks can have unintended consequences. So, you know, a, a ransomware attack can be just intended to make some money, but it could end up impacting critical infrastructure and have much more widespread um, damage than was originally intended. And that's not a hypothetical possibility. Of course, there was um, not Petya, a uh, Russian military intelligence attack against the Ukrainian attack uh, tax authorities some years ago that was probably badly designed software spread around the world and did hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. The Russians don't care, but they seem to have learned from that and have been avoiding collateral damage. Their threshold for acceptable collateral damage is uh, much higher than ours, uh, and their bombing shows that. You've also got colonial pipelines where a Russian criminal group uh, inadvertently uh, did something that affected critical infrastructure. And I think what the Russians learned from those two episodes is they can control this. So we might see um, pressure on critical infrastructure through ransomware. Uh, it makes money and it's more deniable, not plausibly deniable, but you can at least pretend it was someone else. But I think they've got a handle on collateral damage because Remember, the thing for the Russians is managing the risk of escalation so that escalation does not interfere with their plans to uh, over, overcome the Ukraine. So what do we know about uh, Russian cyber attacks against Ukraine in the current crisis? Um, what does that tell us about Putin's intentions and, you know, I, and what kind of damage has it done so far in Ukraine? Do we know? The Russians have two advantages. The first advantage is they have uh, more than a decade of experience with this stuff. If you go back to Estonia, uh, more about 15 years ago, they have figured out how to do this. They've used it. They have lots of practice, and they have doctrine. They have they know where does information warfare fit in, where does misinformation, where does attack on critical infrastructure. They have another advantage in Ukraine, which is they built Ukraine's critical infrastructure. They know it inside and out. It's like having the builders of your house wanting to break into it. So that's a unique advantage for them there. And they have used all of the levers they have. They've done disinformation. They've done service disruption. They've put threats on government websites. So it's, it's a very comprehensive strategy. It's integrated into their larger military strategy. And this is a place where the Russians have a real advantage. All right. Well, Jim, we appreciate you being on the program. Thank you very much. Up next, there's a growing need to share and analyze data that impacts public safety. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to leverage technologies to improve operations for border security. We'll be right back. When borders closed as a result of the COVID pandemic, it showed the need for governments to share and analyze large amounts of data impacting public safety. 
The IBM Center for the Business of Government has put out a report on leveraging technologies to improve operations and security across borders. Dan Chenock is the executive director of that center. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Mimi. So walk us through the problem. What's, what are the issues here? So when you've got countries across the world, and in this case we have the US, Singapore, and Australia, and the IT leaders for the border security agencies of each nation, needing to share information um, and relying on technology that sometimes is you know, 10, 20 years uh, outdated, uh, relying on data stores that are in multiple places and need to be shared quickly, um, relying on uh, intersection with the private sector, with airlines, uh, shipping, uh, ports, etc. Um, all of those things are challenges in terms of exchanging real-time information for border agencies. And the discussion in the, uh, among the three leaders was how can they um, learn from one another and really create a better frame for exchanging information. So can you walk us through an example of why this is important? Um, so if you're thinking about the need to ensure that uh, goods or people are traveling safely and securely, that the efficiency is being done correctly, but there's also security to catch uh, malactors, to catch um, uh, goods that shouldn't be transported across borders. At a time when the, the shape of those borders is changing, the rules governing travel and transit are changing, the need to understand how to uh, exchange that information and do so in a way that complies with ethics and privacy and respects the vast majority of legitimate traffic while catching the bad guys uh, is very important, especially today. So is this a technology problem or is it a policy problem? It's both. Um, it's really a problem of management and technology and, and data exchange. So the idea of developing public-private partnerships where companies who are dealing, the shipping companies, um, uh, again, the, the transportation companies that are exchanging information across borders, um, the exchange of the use of technology, like in the, um, in the case of Australia, uh, they develop a digital passport so that if you're traveling to the country, rather than have a long process of entry, you can you basically fill out a passport in advance with all of your information, including your health information, so that your entry to the country is safe, secure, and speedy. So explain the role of artificial intelligence and other technologies in, in this issue of border security. So artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies can help the governments get ahead of the problem. And instead of having uh, analysts kind of sift through lots of data to understand where are the patterns and where are the anomalies that they need to go after, what's, what's the problematic package or the person of interest who's coming across the border, artificial intelligence can be used to much more quickly um, enable the governments to find those problems and to uh, admit and, and process the legitimate traffic more effectively. In, in the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Directorate, uh, CIO Sinebogualia talked about the bots that they're using um, to uh, increase their internal efficiency, to increase uh, their ability to, to migrate email, for example, from days and weeks to really a day. So what about supply chain assurance, right? So what needs to be put in place, what technologies need to be put in place so that the same thing doesn't happen again that we're we're actually having right now. Yeah, so this is again an exchange of information across borders so that governments understand sort of not just what is the person or good of interest coming in, but what is the derivation, the provenance 
of those materials as they're as they're coming into a port. And analytics technologies, uh, evolving blockchain technologies um, like the Trade Lens Global Network, where countries are sharing information across a blockchain much more efficiently than they could using traditional analytics, are all technologies that have uh, have importance and relevance. So, what have we learned now from the pandemic? What are the lessons learned? I'm hoping that we've learned a lot about this. Yeah, I think it's the, the it's a combination, as your question before asked, of having the right strategy. Um, understanding sort of what are the goals of travel and transport, how can customs and border agencies enable the legitimate flow of people and goods, and then using data and technology to much more quickly and effectively catch the, the malactor, understand sort of where the person of interest is, be able to apprehend them quickly, and enable the system to operate efficiently and effectively. You, you mentioned that your center hosted this dialogue with leaders from Singapore and Australia. I wonder if you learned anything from them that can be applied here in the United States. Um, certainly, uh, in the case of the Singapore Home Team Science and Technology Agency, what they call HTX, their um, uh, IT director, Eng Yabun, uh, leads 15 centers of excellence. Uh, and those centers of excellence focus on technologies, and they're somewhat similar to our centers of excellence in the General Services Administration. They're probably more technology-focused, and they're, they really go a little bit more granular to really understand how does biometrics matter here, how does robotics process automation, um, how does the evolving technology suite around IoT and blockchain come into play. And so digging deep on those technologies through centers of excellence model, I think, can help us build our model more effectively. So let's talk about evolving threats and new things that are coming down. What do we need to do now to prepare for those future threats? Yeah, so that's where the three leaders, uh, including Rady Kovacevic in Australia, the CIO, uh, at, um, at their Department of Home Affairs, and the other two leaders uh, really talked about getting ahead of the threat through analytics, through scenario planning, um, through engagement with citizens um, who understand and often are the sort of at the front line of the threat picture because they're seeing things in real time at the borders, um, on, uh, creating data flows to, to capture that information more, more efficiently, and develop models, simulation and modeling, uh, to get ahead of the threat. All right, well, Dan, thanks so much. Nice to see you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find any interview and subscribe to our channel on YouTube. It's called Government Matters. And we have a new look. You can see more on our website at govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. 
we have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.